Welcome back to the South American Football Show Q&A session. We're going to be answering the questions that we got on Twitter on, on this episode. We're going to have to run through them fairly quickly because we got at least 10. So we ended the, the first show with a, with a question about Brazilian football. I'm going to start this show with a question about Brazilian football. Um, and this one is from Big Papa, at Real Big Papa. Does Brazilian football <laughs> does Brazilian football benefit from or suffer for the state leagues? I know from conversations I've had with you guys in the past on the South American Football Show, I think we are probably in agreement here that we think that Brazilian football in the main suffers from, from state league football. But I'm not sure if suffer is the right, right word, but it just... I don't know. I think we agree that it feels unnecessary in 2020. No, Tom? Yeah, bin it off. That's uh, that's pretty much my uh, uh, thoughts. And I mean, it depends who you're focusing on, really, doesn't it? Because for the big clubs, it, it doesn't really help them. I mean, they might not suffer because they're, they've got great resources and you know big bigger squads and everything like that but it just means that they've the calendar just turns into such a massive slog and there's there's no reason why you couldn't maybe run it concurrently throughout the year i i I think and and then not have this just big run of games all together i mean i think that it means that the the big clubs can also potentially get under a bit of a slow start to the Libertadores as they haven't really had any um, competitive football to get up to up to gear. Um, I think that's that's a, a problem. It's unattractive for a lot of the players um, to hang around for you know, three or four months sort of playing against these, these tiny minnows. But then I suppose there are some positives. I mean, I'm sure the smaller teams benefit from it. Um, and it gives them a chance to to try their might against the, the the bigger teams. It's a good opportunity for young players to to break through as well. Um, but I think, generally speaking, um, and it's it's one of Tim Vickery's bugbears really of uh, of having a problem with the, the way that the uh, the Brazilian calendar is organised. Um, and you, you're increasingly seeing teams like um, Atletico Paranaense sort of just sending out reserves teams and not not treating it seriously. So, yeah, I think generally um, I would be on the, the suffer side. Do we think that maybe after the current crisis in the world with, with COVID-19 that something like a state league will be looked at? As to as to whether it's really needed, because that, that has really set back the the Brazilian football calendar, hasn't it? Because you know, but they, they haven't even managed to start their league season yet, and who knows when they're going to be able to. Yeah, I think it gives everyone a chance to kind of reevaluate things and prioritize different tournaments and and so forth. But yeah, you know, it's it's basically U twenty teams playing against amateur teams under the guise of, you know, the first teams. And obviously when they get to the knockout stages, they play against each other, then maybe they bring through some stars and they win a trophy before the season's even started. But it's it's strange. Maybe make it a cup competition, put more put more prestige into a into a cup competition, including all of the teams so they just have one meet, one midweek game and rather than a you know, just having a group with teams which it's like St Albans City playing in a league with Arsenal, you know. 
what's the point what's the point so yeah I mean again I understand it's got historical reasons and and it means a lot to the smaller teams but maybe you make it a cup competition you put more prestige on that have it knock straight knockout all the way through um, and then crown a you know put more focus on that rather than uh, these state leagues that yeah it, it doesn't make sense to me but I know some people have fondness looking back, but I think right now in the modern game with Libertadores, Sudamericana, you know, league and cup and all of that stuff, it, it just it just gets a little bit lost for me. I, I don't really understand, but maybe some Brazilians still have some fond memories and fond feelings for it. It seems an easy way to win some silverware, anyway, for if you're at one of the big clubs in one of the smaller regions. Yeah, get 10, 10 stars on your badge. I'm sure it um, probably helps some of the... Uh... The, the political powers gain some gain some votes as well if they uh, keep the keep the state leagues for the smaller clubs as well so there's there's probably an element of that to it as well okay um, I'm going to do this question now from Billy Dean are Argentina at risk of losing their status as South American heavyweights alongside Brazil and if so is any other country likely to take their place well Brazil won the won the last Copper America Argentina reached the last four of that when many, including me, didn't expect them to. Uh, Tom, I'll, I'll come to you for this. It, you know, if if you were to judge them on what we saw in the 2018 World Cup, Argentina looked, you know, way off the the best in the world at that point, certainly defensively. Um, but we have seen some signs under a manager where there was very low expectation as to as to what he would achieve. But we have started to see some green shoots of progress. No? Yeah, I think um, obviously they they were horrendous at the the 2018 World Cup, and they'd they'd put off the the rebuild that they needed to do. Um, kind of focusing on the short term goals of of trying to get that milk the the last out of that really good generation um at the at the Copa Americas previously but you know this is a side that reached the final of um of three tournaments uh, in in consecutive years um they were very close you know uh, last minute goals and penalty shootouts away from from you know being a uh, one of the most sort of decorated sides in recent history and um, I think even though that they've definitely had a fall from grace, um, there's no way that they've lost their their status as a as a heavyweight in in South American football. I mean, just just the historical uh, clout that they have, you know, the continental performances their club sides have been putting out um, on a regular basis in the Libertadores, the player production, and the fact they've got messy it means that um then you know you're not you're never gonna lose that tag of of heavyweights that quickly um they're, they're doing a good job of rebuilding and the, the, the signs are there that their um overdue rebuild is is starting to you know bring some promise um so yeah they're they're, they're, they're i don't think they're necessarily at the top table of south american football but they'll always be considered a, a heavy heavyweight and i think if you look at the the clubs, uh, sorry, not the clubs. If you look at the countries that are arguably better than them, um, and you know could become maybe a more regular feature as as heavyweights, then I think you've you've got to look at Uruguay and Colombia. Basically, they they've got great squads. They've got good young players coming through. Um, I think if they played against Argentina, they they would win. You know, probably half the time at least. Um, 
potentially just edge them um and they're in and they're in better positions now than than Argentina is so for me those those two are the ones that are likely to join them rather than take their place yeah i mean from a colombian perspective and i, I definitely agree with uruguay as well and i think uruguay have always produced great players but you look at the depth in squad now and and obviously suarez and cavani won't be around forever but maxi gomez is coming in and Brian Rodriguez, the the winger, I think is really good. And there's lots of really good central midfielders in there. And plus they've still got Jimenez at the back. And yeah, I think Uruguay are a very good team and a team that uh, we've mentioned in the previous pod, uh, Herakia, the, the, the ability to rise to the occasion. They definitely have that, which I think is probably what Colombia still lack. Um, the last Copa America was interesting for Colombia. I think it really showed the quality and also some of the fragility they have. They beat Argentina, I think, comfortably. Um, they went into the game feeling confident and they came out with it. Uh, obviously, there were there were points here and there, but I think they came out good winners in that game. Um, and the interesting thing was people weren't that surprised to follow South American football. I think you look at Argentina over the last five years, you could say maybe they aren't the second place, best, best, best team. I think Uruguay would be above and Colombia are up and down, but are in the conversation. Now, as you say, Argentina have a lot of good talent coming through and they've got a lot of good players still in the squad. Moving forward, I think Colombia need to decide um, what this transformation in identity means. Um, they've traditionally played a 4-2-3-1. They're now looking at um, more aggressive pressing, uh, a kind of a 4-3-3, four, three, three, but with Cuadrado coming forward from the three to make it almost a 4-2-4, four, four, very aggressive, very compact, um, tight interchange of, of play, um, which looked very interesting at the Copa America until they played, played a, a seasoned, uh, experienced Chilean side who just ground the ground out the result and stayed organized and kept their heads when Colombia lost it and and were deserved winners in that game so you look at Colombia before the Chile game and you think Jesus these guys are these guys are up there chasing Brazil you know the top of the chasing pack and then you see them after the Chile game and uh, expectations suddenly crashed and, and and fell through the ground again so Colombia again you mentioned the depth in, the depth in quality Colombia have players who will never have a Colombian cap who would have been the best player in the squad 15 years ago. Uh, it really is that dramatic. So Colombia have a lot of options, a lot of good players. You just look at defence midfield. You can name six or seven players who would be star men. Uh, Barrios, Lerma, uh, Joman Camposano, Victor Cantillo. The list goes on and on. Mateo Soribe. So Colombia have all of the ingredients. Um, to They're now where they should be in terms of South American football. Um, and then you have the guys who are coming up. Venezuela, we've been very excited about. We'll see what they do when they come back. Ecuador have all of the talent and are starting from a low position, but it's a clean slate for them in many ways, bringing in all the youth players. Um, we'll, we'll see what happens. But I think um, right now for me, yeah, Brazil at the yeah. top, and you have a, a big, interesting chasing pack all, all clambering for, for those World Cup places. Yeah, just just so we can go into this in a little bit more detail, because we got a question from Stephen Haran, um, at Haran1888, who said, which South American country, in your opinion, has the best next generation of players coming through? Um, I think, you know, it's... it's We've said on the South American football show since we saw them at the start of last year, um, Ecuador, their under-20 side last year, 
yeah, but they they really impressed us, didn't they? Here in here in this tournament in 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 Chile in the, in the under twenty South American Championships, they went on to prove it on a world level as well, ending up finishing third place. And yeah, there there was a there was a lot of talent in that side, and some a couple of those players are already proving it. Gonzalo Plata at, at Sporting in in Portugal, for example, has had a really good season up until now. From from what I can see from reports there, um, really exciting, quick winger, and you have players who really caught the eye like Jordan Rezabala and uh, Leandro Campana, who who got a move to Wolverhampton Wanderers, yet to, yet to make an appearance there, but was very exciting. Simon, I know you're you're especially in love with him. Um, and my favourite player from that team was uh, Sefuentes, the, the centre midfielder, Jose Sefuentes, and, and he got a move to Los Angeles FC in MLS. So it'd be interesting to see how he gets on there once once football does come back. But yeah, what, what's interesting about this uh, you know, big break we've, we've got in football at the moment, you know, it, it has stunted the growth of, of some of the most talented um, South American players coming through. We, we, we probably named quite a few earlier, but yeah, of the, of the less obvious nations, you've got to say at the moment, it looks like Ecuador are perhaps going to be producing sort of the next uh, golden generation like Chile did uh, 10 years ago. Um, but you know it is difficult to look past the the likes of Brazil and Argentina because you know you look at Brazil at the moment they've they've got three players under the age of twenty all signed for big money at Real Madrid the biggest club in the world and yeah it's it's kind of you you look at that and you think wow that's going to be very difficult to to compete with that kind of level for any other south american nation even if just a couple of those which likely to be sort of Vinicius Junior and Rodrigo if if, they, if those two just make it alone and have already really impressed there in in their in their first year or so yeah brazil look a real force once again yeah brazil i think are the are the one that have got a, I mean, they've not got a bad side right now, but I think they've got um, some scarily good talents coming through that in maybe four or five years time where, when they're sort of nearer their peak, we could see Brazil being a, a real, a real force again and, and challenging that European hierarchy. Um, for me though, the, the country that I'm most interested about the, the young players coming through is Uruguay. Um, really amazing and impressive how such a small country produces um not only the the quantity but also the quality and and i know that we've got another question sort of questioning the the sort of decline of the uruguayan golden generation which i'm sure we'll get onto in a bit um but for me i think they've managed the transition so well you know you, you look at the way that they just pretty much ripped up the the textbook in terms of their midfields before the last World Cup and and threw in the likes of um, Bentancur, um, Torreira, um, Nandes. It, it, was, it was really impressive to, to see them make that massive leap and kind of move away from the, the old guard of hard, gnarled uh, defensive midfielders and, and bring in some really technical um, players. And, and then obviously the rise of Fede Valverde, who I think is, is elite level talent that's just going to complement them even more um yes they're going to have to deal with the loss of the amazing forwards like uh, Suarez and Cavani but they've got some really good players as, as Simon mentioned um Brian Rodriguez is a fantastic talent 
Uh, Maxi Gomez is, is very good too. Fede Vinas, who we've got a, a scouting spotlight pod coming out um, hopefully soon. Um, he's he's another interesting upstart. And and also, you know, you look at some of the young talent in the league. Uh, Facundo Pelistri is being linked to pretty much every big club that you can think of. Um, Nacional had a very good under-20 side that won the under-20 Libertadores and, and they're bringing some really interesting players through. And, you know, there's there's a, a whole host of centre backs that you could pick and choose from as well. Ronaldo Raúl is is seems to have impressed at Barcelona and and could potentially cement his place there um, when football restarts. And you've got uh, Jiménez, you've got um, Santiago Bueno, you've got all kinds of other centre backs there that could that are going to continue that Uruguayan tradition. Mendes, another one, the, the list goes on really. So for me, I think Uruguay, uh, they're going to be absolutely fine and potentially could even get better. So we shall see. And yeah, Simon, we... do you want to big up the Colombian corner? <laughs> well, I think I think Colombia um, have a, a huge amount of young talent, but I also think that they've suffered a little bit from pretty poor youth management in terms of the U20 team, U, the U17 team, um, particularly U20. I don't think uh, I don't think the management's been very good. So I think we've only really scratched the surface in terms of talent. I mean, for me, Yaminton Campas is 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 great, but he's he's never fe- featured for the U20 team, which is insanity because I think he's probably one of the best young attacking midfielders, box-to-box midfielders in, in South America. The same you could say for Andres Colorado, who is 21, Deportivo Cali. I think he's the next Patrick Vieira there, putting it straight out there. I think he's great. The best defensive midfield stats in the Colombian League by, by a good distance, and this is his first season. But again, the U17 team, I think, in Colombia is, is more interesting than the U20 team was. Um, Andres Arroyo a really good wide playmaker, inverted playmaker, Delio Ramirez as well, breaking through. Uh, you look at Juan Manuel, Manuel Cuesta, who has been dubbed Etu, is, is very good, very stylish, inside left winger, uh, reminiscent a little bit for me of um, Gabriel Jesus, this kind of player. Um, Edwin Mosquera, incredibly quick for the U17 team. Uh, Johan Campagna, full of tricks. Uh, and then you've got slightly older players. I'm a huge fan of Jason Guzman, as you know. I adore him. Great player. Um, really? I think Fabian Angel is the Colombian Steven Gerrard is a great player as well. But aside from Colombia, Ecuador, again, you know, so much talent. Independiente del Valle on their own probably um, can feed the Ecuadorian national team for the next five years with the talent they have coming through. Uh, we've seen Moises Caicedo. I'm a big fan of Marco Angulo, defence midfielder. I think William Pacho is a good defender. And this kid in Ecuador, Johan Mina, he is the next Neymar. I tell you, six goals in eight games for Ecuador's U17 team in the last South American Championships. Uh, attacking midfielder, elegant, always on his toes, step overs, and then fires off left-footed shots from 40 yards that fly in the top Yeah, Mina, Mina could play anywhere across the, across the front. I think that's the impressive thing about him, having, having looked at him quite a bit. Um, in recent weeks, um, yeah, he he could he could potentially play up front on his own, either wing or just behind a striker. Um, he's even been tried out sort of a little bit further back than that um, in, in centre midfield. A really versatile attacking uh, player. Um, yeah, I think Ecuador have really unearthed a gem there. But 
but the interesting thing about Mina, he, he hasn't got a professional minute to his name, I don't think, in club football. So he's only proved himself at the youth level. So it'd be interesting to see how he does do once he once he steps up to that professional level. Just want to back up what Simon says about um, Moises Casero as well. Um, he's only got a few um, professional matches under his belt, but definitely one of the most um, exciting talents. Um, I, I've seen just sort of on on, on those first impressions, um, uh, defensive midfielder. He, he's a play, he's a player who reminds me a bit of a player at my club, Norwich in in England. Uh, he reminds me a bit of Ben Godfrey in his ability to pass and contribute from deep. He can dribble it out. Um, yeah, so I could even see him being converted into a centre back as as Godfrey was by uh, Farker when when uh, when the German took charge at Norwich. So yeah, I, th- I, th- I think he's exciting. And yeah, in in Chile we've got Carlos Palacios, who is a player I was getting increasingly excited about uh, pre lockdown. Um, he's really the only. A, t- a real attacking talent that excites me coming out of Chile at the moment, um, sort of under the age of 21 anyway. Um, yeah, he plays for Union Española, um, yet, to, yet to feature at under 20 level for Chile, but I think he'll be key next year if those under 20 South American championships go ahead. And that kind of answers kind of a question that we've yeah, I, th- I think a couple of people asked about like the up-and-coming wonder kids of South American football, Juan David uh, Cortez being one of them. Um, um, he asked he asked us what the up-and-coming South American wonder kids, who are they? Um, Tom, do you have any that you would like to add to the list? Yeah, I'll, I'll throw more in, into that obviously massive list that we're that we've already uh we've mentioned i mean yeah i'd, I'd echo the thoughts about moises Caicedo. he's i think he's brilliant he's going to be really good um one thing i would say about generally my approach to judging at under 17 level i'm always a bit wary because the amount of times i've been burned by seeing great young players at that age i kind of like to wait until i see them under 20 to to really sort of um wax lyrical about them so that's that's always my word of caution when it comes to to judging players but I think um just looking at Argentina Thiago Almada is the obvious one um I think he's he's an absolutely fantastic prospect and and will go on to to do really amazing things other than that Adolfo Gaich is a really interesting talent and um uh, Zaracho is probably one of the the most consistently good young players still in Argentina as well. Um, so they're three that from Argentina that I would I would expect big things from and, and there's always other good ones coming through. Matias Palacios is a is a young kid at San Lorenzo who's got a big future as well. Um, other than that, um, I think in in Brazil, um Kyle Jorge from uh, from Santos is is someone who's been highly rated. Um Tayas Magno as well at Vasco, another who's looking quite quite impressive. Um, and there's, yeah, even though I thought I'd listed pretty much every good young Uruguayan, there's still a few out there that, that I forgot. There's um, uh, Manuel Ugarte, who's a really good defensive midfielder for Phoenix, who, who I think is going to be, I think he's one of the best prospects in Uruguay right now. Um, and then there's some younger kids like Fabricio Diaz and Matias Arezzo. Um 
and then Paraguay, there's there's a few good young players who it will be worth watching as well. Ivan Franco, the, the standout one who, who me and Austin did a spotlight pod on. Um, but there's also Eric Lopez, uh, Inciso, Ovelar. All young guys have already made a breakthrough and, um, and, and will be worth watching as well. So uh, as always... One of the best things about watching South American football is those is those uh, wonder kids, and uh, yeah. um, they're not going to dry up anytime soon. Yeah, of of the players that caught my eye in that under twenty South American Championships last year in Chile, um, you know, the two at the time that I really thought had something special about them was uh, firstly Pedro de la Vega, who he's still at Lanús, no Tom. Yeah, at, at yeah, the he's still there. Um, and I think he went into that tournament as what a seventeen-year-old, so he was quite a bit mm. younger than a lot of the players. But he looked so mature as a player. I think I've said it before uh, on these pods. That's what really struck me: his footballing intelligence, his maturity on the ball. Um, yeah, he he's a player I think who could develop into a very handy player at, at the at Champions League level of European football. Um, from what I've seen so far and um, yeah a striker that I was quite excited about by the end of it and certainly um, after the under 20 World Cup as well and, and that was Aldolfo Geish um, who is at San Lorenzo at the moment but is is um, is looking for a move out I think pretty much as soon as possible when uh, when we do come out of the the, the crisis worldwide at the moment um, and yeah he's a, he's a striker who he very much reminds me of uh, Harry Kane, um, and yeah, he he has said that he's one of the players that he kind of moulds his game on as well. Um, so yeah, he could be a very interesting um, proposition for um, a very interesting answer to some of Argentina's striker problems over the years of giving them something maybe a little bit different. Um, in in that centre in that centre forward role, a bit more height than they've perhaps had in 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 recent times as well. Um, so a bit more aerial threat in the box. Yeah, very very interesting striker for them over over the next few years, and very strong as well. Um, a player I'm I'm looking forward to see how he will develop. Uh, just before we move on, a uh, couple for me I, from the U20. I, you know, Bolivia played some good stuff in that tournament. I think they lacked a little bit of edge here and there, a bit of physicality. But I, I really liked Franz Gonzalez, who's still very young, just joined the strongest. But I think he's potentially able to make another step up. He's been playing really well uh, for his club as well as for Bolivia at youth level. Went to the U23 Olympic uh, qualifying tournament. Um, I still 18, 19 years old. I think he's a very good box-to-box midfielder, uh, very classy. Uh, in terms of a final couple of Colombians, uh, Marino Inestrosa, I'm a big fan of. He's just joined Palmeiras, um, 17 years old, can play left-back uh, as like a wing-back, can play on the left wing, can play as a forward. He is one of the fastest players I've ever seen in my life. He is really, really tough. He's built... Um, a little bit like Avinculo for for uh, the Peruvian, um, but has a lot of quality on the ball as well. He, I think, is he's a player Barcelona were looking at um, for for recently. He is um, very very good, and I think it's a great bit of business for Palmeiras to sign him as a 17 year old from America de Cali. I think he's um, incredibly talented and could be Colombia's answer on the left hand side for for years to come. A very very good player. Okay. Um, right, let's uh, let's move on. Well, 
it's not really moving on. It, it's, it's slightly tied in to some of the stuff that we've already discussed. Um, there was a question from RJP Journalism um, who asked, are we witnessing the end of Chile's golden generation with a decline of Alexis, Vidal, Bravo, etc.? And um, and Ross Kilvington asked a very similar question. Um, after seeing the decline of Chile and Uruguay golden generations, who do we think will create a team able to challenge both Brazil and Argentina. I feel we've kind of answered Ross's question already. Tom touched on, you know, the fact that he thinks that Uruguay pretty much renewed their their golden generation. They, they should be fine for the next few years, and I think I have to agree with him there. Um, Chile, yeah, it's a lot more difficult from the Chilean perspective. I think... Uh, I think the decline has already happened. Yeah, so it's already arrived, really. Uh, the players were shattered by the end of 2017, in truth. Yeah, they'd played four tournaments in, in a row. Uh, so no break, no European summer off um, after World Cup in 2014. Those two Copper Americas and then the Confederations Cup. I think that caught up with them when they got back to to the South American qualifiers um, in the in the September of that year. They lost 3-0 to Paraguay at home, which was a really key result in 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 their failure to qualify for for, for the World Cup, given that Paraguay didn't look like they were they were going to qualify at that point at all. So yeah, that that was a real blow. But I'm increasingly of the view, and this has sort of in my view <laughs> My feelings of this have, have increased even further this week. That uh, a big part of the problem as to as to why Chile faded like they did in the in the end was, I think, the thought of the incredible ego of Arturo Vidal, who seems to be determined to fall out with as many people as possible in, in Chilean football. Um, it was his row after. Chile's defeat to Brazil, which put the final nail in the coffin of the 2018 World Cup qualifying hopes. Um, yeah, his uh, Bravo's wife went on television basically and uh, and said, you know, pl- players such as Vidal had been out drinking and partying too much, not been focusing too much on on their football. Um, I've seen that ex Juventus teammates of of Vidal have said similar in in in, in recent weeks as well um and you know that that's always a criticism of of him here in Chile as well that he's just sort of uh at, at vital times of his career he he partied too much and 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 didn't take his football seriously enough although you know a lot of the players who played with him say that they've never really seen it affect his performances um I think it has perhaps some of the stuff that he's done when he has got out of control, like crashing his Ferrari during the 2015 Copper America, you know, he's very fortunate to get away with just a slap on the wrist, basically, for that, and a, and a driving ban. Um, you know, and also, also in that, 
Copa America. He was lucky not to get sent off in the semi-final against against Peru. So, you know, his whole story could be very different. You know, he is seen as a footballing hero, at least in the in the country, but he could have easily become a villain, especially during that tournament, crashing his car and then almost getting sent off in the in the semi-final. If, if that had cost Chile that Copa America, you know, his career may have been seen quite differently in in the in the country. But yeah, there there was just no real young talent coming through. That that was a big issue for 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 Chile for many years. Um you know, we, we we do have Eric Polgar in, in midfield who really impressed in, in last year's Copa America in, in Brazil. Um, and Chile do have quite a few sort of defensive options coming through in general. I think my main concern is just the lack of attacking talent um, coming through. There just isn't um, the quality like we've seen from Eduardo Vargas and uh, Alexis Sanchez in uh, in recent times, uh, it's it's difficult to see players quite a fair standard coming through. Although, as I mentioned a bit earlier on in this pod, Carlos Palacios is one I'm really excited about at Union Española. But yeah, I think I think this this Chile side, the fact that these World Cup qualifiers have been delayed even further by by COVID-19, you know, they've already been delayed by the fact that this World Cup is happening, you know, at the end of 2022. So they're already starting later than they usually would. I think all of these things are not good news for Chile. Um, I think by the time it starts, they would have probably one of the oldest sides, average age-wise, going, going into most matches. Um, and, you know, by the end of this qualifying cycle, um, I think it's going to be a real transitional side that that we're going to be seeing. I, I will be surprised if if they do finish in the in the top five for that reason, especially given the quality that Uruguay, Colombia, Brazil, Argentina have have all produced. Uh, the quality of players that they're producing in the bucket loads, it seems in 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 recent times. Yeah, and the other thing with Vidal is, you know, he's the only player that I know of in sort of this generation of Chilean football who refuses to give Marcelo Bielsa any credit whatsoever, which again sort of plays into what I'm saying about, you know, his incredible ego. He he, he really doesn't seem to be able to give others much credit at all. Um, this week as well, he, he seemed to sort of have a bit of a dig at Charles Arangis. Uh, yeah, it was, yeah, it, it just seems unnecessary. Obviously, Alexis Sanchez's level of uh, performance also dropped off a cliff in, in the, in the, in the, in the last year or so. Certainly for his club side, yeah, more more so for Chile. I thought he had a fairly decent Copa America last year. Yeah, I think this Chile generation is pretty much over. Yeah, I think um, absolutely the the South American qualifying again the the quality at the very top may not be at the the best it's ever been, but in terms of the competitiveness of getting in those World Cup places, I think it's getting increasingly tough. We don't know what's happening with Ecuador. Paraguay are always competitive. Uruguay are very strong. Colombia should be very strong moving forward. Uh, Venezuela are now a factor in, in qualifying. Peru are still there. Bolivia have the altitude and, and will take points. So um, what you've said is interesting and, and it's definitely going to be interesting to see what they can do to kind of 
bring through that next generation if there is a next generation. Um, but it definitely will be a, a tough job, I think, for the next couple of World Cups um, as these other rivals emerge. And again, we don't know what's going to happen with Ecuador. Maybe they won't be able to incorporate these players and, and be what we hope they might become. Maybe Venezuela is going to be a bit of a false start. We don't know. Um, but there definitely does look like there could be six, seven teams all battling out for those uh, World Cup places in the in the coming years. What do you think, Tom? Who? How do you see Chile moving forward? I think it's going to be really tough. Um, I'm just I don't want to be negative about Chile because they've produced some of the best football over the last decade. But um, I just don't see. Um, the the teams and and the players coming through at youth level the the club situations you know not competitive on a continental level I mean all it needs is one group of players to come through and and do well but we've seen time and time again very poor teams and uh, and I'm, I do worry for how they're going to sort of compete at the, le- the top level I mean I think they'll always be in and around there but I think we we might be seeing out of all the uh, teams in South America, what, one that is going to see the biggest drop. This one was from the Bola Bola show. By the time the next World Cup takes place, it's going to be t- 20 years since South America last won a World Cup. Do you see that drought ending in Qatar 2022, given everything we've just said? Well, I think we have to be positive. I think there's a good chance we go into that World Cup with three or four teams who can all reasonably expect to get to the quarterfinal. So I think that's the positive news. Right? And I think Brazil will, will, will be there. And I think Brazil will have a squad, 23 players, who are 23 of the best players in the tournament because they have such great depth. So I think that's a, another reason to be positive. Brazil have a great squad. And again, we'll see what they do with tactics and how they get all that together. But the raw ingredients are going to be ridiculous for Brazil at that point. I think Argentina... Um, have a good chance of getting there if they can bring these young players in and have a good chance. Uh, again, I, I wouldn't say for sure they'll get to the World Cup because there's a lot of work to be done, but they have a lot of quality uh, in that squad um, and there's a great deal of potential. I think Colombia have a great squad. In terms of winning the thing, that's another step above. I think Brazil, Argentina, Colombia, Uruguay all have squads that will be able to compete with most teams in the tournament. Do they have the organisation, the balance across the team? I don't know. We'll have to see. But I think any of those four teams um, can reasonably expect to get well into the knockout stages of a World Cup. And then I think there's luck plays a part as well. So we'll see. What do you think? I'm being quite positive. Tom, are you feeling as positive as me? Yeah, I, I think I am. Obviously, it's it's a long way to go. We, you know, we need to get the qualifiers underway first before we start assessing uh, teams' chances, and and so much can change in in a short amount of time. So it's it's difficult right now to say. I, I do think that um, the quality of the South American nations at the next World Cup it should be higher than it was at the at the last one, and. Um, I, I agree. I think that there's also that factor that there's going to be the last chance saloon for a few really big players. You know, Messi is going to be absolutely desperate to, um, to you know, get that elusive World Cup. You know, you'll have Suarez and Cavani for uh, for Uruguay as well, um, and as well as these really good young players that we've discussed coming through. Um, and I think Brazil will be that further down their development as well. And 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 just because it's in. Qatar at the time of recording um, then there's there's that possibility that given that it's 
maybe going to be a bit of a, a different World Cup. There's that that chance that a team could throw a spanner in the works and kind of upset the uh, the the grip that Europe has had on it. So, um, especially given everything that's going on at the moment, it's you know everything feels a bit out of kilter, and and I think there's the chance that uh, uh, the individual talent that these sides have could could make a difference, especially if the conditions are not ideal to to say the least. So um, yeah, it's is right now it's just way too early to say but I, I'm feeling positive as well Simon Yeah I, I, there's not much I can disagree with what you two have said there this was an interesting question from Andre Milan um, or Mijian I'm not sure how that's pronounced but yeah what South American player was destined for greatness but was cut short by injuries uh, you yeah, know from just from a Chilean perspective, um, you know, Matty Fernandez uh, came to mind as a possible contender for this. He did win the Copa America with Chile in 2015, came off the bench in the final, scored a superb penalty in, in the penalty shootout. Um, and, yeah, and, and contributed certainly a lot to Marcelo Bielsa's Chile side. Um, that qualified for the 2010 World Cup. Bielsa loved him. Um, and, you know, Fernandez was technically better than many of the Chileans of the last de- decade who went on to have better careers in Europe than he did. But, yeah, he was always a player limited by consistent and persistent injury problems. And uh, and I think that, yeah, if, he, if it wasn't for the injuries, he would probably be a lot better known than he is and a lot more appreciated than he is. Um, and aside from that, you know, we both mentioned him pre-pod, didn't we, Tom? This was the only question where we only really discussed it um, before the pod started. And, and that was Adriano of, of Brazil. Now, this has a little bit of a twist on the answer. Although the player did suffer from some physical injuries, um, you know, you could say that, yeah, the reason he didn't hit the heights he was once expected to was more for for mental reasons. Um, yeah, he uh, yeah around um, two thousand and four. I I would say that some would say around his peak was maybe uh, for he was playing for Inter I think at that time and and it, and he also scored a last minute equaliser for Brazil in in the Copa America against um, against Argentina and. That was, um, yeah, the, the point where you thought that he was going to go on to on to true greatness. Um, but his father died shortly after that, I think, and yeah, that that set him on a path of depression and alcohol, and and he never really recovered. I actually saw him in the flesh in the one time I've been to American R, which was back in early 2010 when I was travelling around South America he was playing in a Libertadores match for Flamengo um, against uh, Universidad Católica and uh, and yeah yeah he was he was quite overweight by that point and um, although was probably the best player on the pitch still you know you could see that the reason why he he wasn't playing in Europe anymore because um, because of, of his fitness issues um, at, at, at that time. Um, yeah, Tom, anything to add? Yeah, I, I think uh, 
Adriano is obviously a, a really interesting one there that's got, as you said, a bit more of a, a complex backstory than, than just the, the injury side of things. It's quite hard really to, to judge because I think that the, when you when you look at this question, you could you could sort of interpret it as those players who are probably fairly well known, but maybe we would have liked to seen more from um, and could have gone on to that next level in their career. Um, because, you know, a lot of those young players maybe who are destined for greatness, but then get injured, never really make it and never sort of their stories don't really sort of travel as far. So the the, the one that I think really stands out for me um, as, as an obvious example would be Fernando Gago. He's someone who's had absolutely rotten luck with, with injuries. He's, he's done his ACL, you know, more times than I can count, I think. And, um, and he's, he's someone who certainly when he was coming through was, you know, regarded as the next Redondo and, and made, you know, a pretty good start to life in, in Spain. Um, and, and also he had a great understanding with Messi for the national team as well. I think he could have been that kind of missing link um, that could have maybe taken that Argenti- uh, Argentina squad just to that next level. And and again, I think he got uh, another injury recently as well. So I think he's, he's, he's the obvious one, but um, yeah, the, the, there might be a few um, sort of young players that we kind of have the privilege of kind of watching their entire careers and, and, and maybe we'll be able to say in a, in a few years time as, as ones that we kind of remember as, as great young talents who, who didn't go on to fulfill their full potentials. Um, how about you, Simon? Yeah, I found it a little bit difficult, really. I mean, I think with most Colombians, it's the parties and that kind of stuff and off the field distractions. Obviously, Adriano is <laughs> a specific case, but that again is something that's seen around South America. You know, every, Every uh, bar on every corner, every barrio has a guy there drinking at 60 years old going, ah, I was going to be a superstar, but, you know, I like to party. I was too popular. Um, and, you know, when it, in terms of injuries, for me, the player I've seen come through and who's not pushed on as I, I hoped and expected is uh, Jefferson Gomez, um, who's had horrible injury run the last two or three years. But when he was at Envigado, he was on... On the verge of a move to Fiorentina, a very pacey, classy, technical defender who's still, when fit, in the junior first team and still doing well. But he's, you know, 23 more or less now, I think. And uh, he's not in Europe, which I wouldn't have expected. But in terms of off the field, I mean, look at jo- uh, Johan Aranjo. is Thierry Henry. He is the Colombian Thierry Henry. But he's missed Copa Libertadores games because he's been at a party. He's zero discipline. He's currently in Peru at our favourite club, B Nacional, um, <laughs> having some amazing games and having three or four games where he doesn't look like he's paying any attention. Um, but he's a player with incredible talent who suffered for off-the-field reasons, uh, not necessarily injuries. But if we were to look at uh, disciplinary factors, I'm sure we'd all have much longer lists, which is perhaps quite telling as well. But um, yeah, yeah. That Jefferson Gomez is one whose injuries have stopped him becoming a top European player, I think, so far. And hopefully he has a bit more luck with the rest of his career. One that's just popped into my head quickly as well is uh, Emmanuel Mamana. Um, I thought he was going to be the, the saviour of Argentina's defence and um, he looked so classy when he was coming through. And then he's just been absolutely dogged by injuries ever since. And, and now just is, yeah, nowhere near um in the even in the 
discussion of a place in the national team. So he's probably one of the ones in recent years that I've been most um, seen most crippled by injury and uh, have been most disappointed about um, as well. And what about Belanta, Simon, the the Colombian centre back? Didn't his career suffer from from injuries? We had a question from uh, the Red Wine about that. Yeah, injuries were definitely a factor. Um, I, I'm sure Tom can help us out as well, perhaps from an Argentine perspective. Um, they, he, you know, I, I saw the question. They were looking at what happened to him while well, he's in Europe. He just lifted, albeit belatedly, lifted the Belgium league title this week. He's been playing defensive midfield. Uh, in Belgium for Club Bruges um, is currently he was on a phone call yesterday with the uh, Colombian manager about a possible return to the Colombian national team. It's not the career we perhaps expected. Uh, I remember, was... I remember Tim Vickery was especially keen on on him, wasn't he, for for many years? So that's certainly a name I think many people have looked out for. Yeah, absolutely. And he was a superstar on Football Manager as well. So that obviously gets him in uh, a lot of people's notebooks too. And, and he was he was very impressive. A quick central defender, very composed on the ball. Uh, had an injury, had a couple of setbacks, uh, a little dip in form. And um, it just seems the general consensus is he never quite recovered his confidence. Uh, and perhaps, I mean, today he looks a little bit heavier than he did at his, his peak or... It's strange to talk about peak of an 18, 19 year old, but uh, when he was on the way up, he did seem a little bit quicker. He's, he's a powerful, strong player. He's been in Colombia squads. He was in the Colombia squad in 2014, but I think he's mostly valued now for his versatility as a, a player who can play at fullback or centre back and, and now is a, a good defensive midfielder. He's had an all right career. He's been playing Champions League. He's been playing as a part of a back three and, and at times in a defensive midfield role. But Tom, you, you know, you've been watching Argentine football. What did you? What are your reasons that it didn't quite take off for him after such a bright start at River? Yeah, I would agree. I, I think it's it's more a case that after that initial amazing sort of breakthrough around sort of 2012, 2013, um, he, he got that injury and then just a lot of different factors kind of conspired against him. He, he kind of eventually made that move to Basel and, and, you know, played, played a fair bit for them, you know, always a, always a decent level. So I think that as definitely injuries have kind of held him back from reaching the level that we once thought he was going to. And, and confidence is another thing that you, you rightly mentioned there as well. I think it did um, knock him out of his stride at, at such a key time. But I think it's more a case of, I don't think you can f- simply just blame it on injuries. He's He was probably over, maybe a little bit overhyped as well. Um, and in a mixture, mixture of those things we've discussed and maybe not getting a move as, uh, at the right time, um, all kind of meant that he, he didn't quite succeed in the way that we all uh, were expecting and, and hoping to. So yeah, another one who uh, kind of goes down that uh, route of uh, slightly uh, dampened expectations after such a bright start. Okay, we've spoken quite a bit about players in the, in this podcast, up-and-coming players. Let's move on to talk about some up-and-coming managers. We had a couple of questions on this, um, Xander Wilkinson asked out of all the current young managers doing good things within South America, which ones can you see making the jump to Europe soon and doing well? And along similar lines, we had a question which said, 
besides Giaro, I always get um, George Jesus, no? Is the right pronunciation in, in Portuguese? Yeah, just J, not her. And Sam, and Sam Paoli. Um, who are the best five managers in, in South America and why? Um, and, and that second question was from Siamos Distintos. Well, get me out of the way, right? I'll talk about Colombians and we can quickly move on because there really aren't any, right? So Rueda had a good career and he's getting a little bit older now. He's, you know, he's, he's, he's a fine manager, but he's not going to Europe at any point. Osorio had so many positive signs, built the great Nacional team that won the, the Libertadores under Rueda, but he was key to that. Uh, trained, uh, grew, went to Manchester City and, and had that experience working with them. Um, returned to Nacional and is inventive. Maybe he's a genius, but I can't see it. I think he's a lunatic, but we will see. But he's one to maybe watch if he can get his together. Um, apart from that, Gamero, who was great for Tolima, but has struggled a bit at Millonarios. So there you go. Quick line under Colombia. I don't expect any of those guys to make it into your top five. Um, <laughs> I would I would say perhaps Brazil's a little bit short as well. But Tom, we're heading down your way. Any, anyone your end to consider? Yeah, I mean, the, the one that immediately is always going to be my first two is uh, Gabriel Hainse. Um I think he's he's done absolutely wonders not only at Argentinos Juniors to get them up um, um, but then at Velez as well he's he's got them right back up the table where they belong and the most important thing out of all of it as a, I've probably mentioned on previous pods is is that he's really one of the few manager the managers in the Argentinian leagues that I see stamp his kind of brand of football and authority um on on a team he's he's got them playing fantastic possession based football um you know with a with a side that's constantly losing its best players and doesn't have the same resources as big sides he's obviously left velez now and it's going to be um interesting to see where he turns up next i've not been uh, tracking the latest rumors but i uh, saw marseille were were linked with him as a as a former player which uh, could be quite a good uh, interesting move. So he's he's the one I've got huge hopes for. Um, otherwise, um, Eduardo Chacho Caudet has, has just moved for, um, to Internacional Internacional in Brazil, and I think he's um, he's proven at a couple of clubs that he's he's a he's a good one to watch. Um, Beca Sese or Beca Sexy, as um, a lot of the uh, Racing fans are dubbing him, and the you know his good sartorial choices on the sidelines. Um, San Paulo's old assistant he's he's done well at Defensa Justicia and and looks to be doing well at Racing and he's he's young but has got a lot of experience under his belt and then other than that you're probably looking at Diego Dabove who's who's uh, once again punched well above his weight this time at um, Argentinos Juniors and um, I think it's gonna be interesting to see how Crespo does as well because um, he's not necessarily got the results yet but his his side's playing interesting attacking football um so out of argentina they're they're the main ones um that i would say as as the best young ones whether they get into the top five in the continent i'd maybe argue that hainse hainse would probably be deserving of a of a place and um i think you could probably put some of the other national team managers in there gareca cheech as is in the top five along with gajardo jesus and san paoli um and then the only other one that I would probably throw in there, he's not technically South American, but he's done great things at Independiente del Valle, is um, Miguel Angel Ramirez, um, a young Spanish manager who's, who's who's doing very well. I think he'll be getting a job in Europe before long too. 
Yeah, I think he was the name I was going to mention as one which could be an interesting one to watch because the 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 coaching that he's done at Independiente de A has been superb, and it'd be interesting to see how he, he would fit into 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 some clubs in Europe because I think arguably it's quite easy to impress at on Independiente de A because of how well everything is set up there. So it will be interesting to see sort of in coming years the head coaches who do well there, whether they can transfer their skills into Europe, into into uh, perhaps a more um, less polished setup in a, in a, um, relatively speaking in, in Europe. So because I do feel like Independiente de Valle are just sort of streets ahead in 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 how they're how they're set up in in South America and especially Ecuador. That is, uh, that's uh, basically an advantage to 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 coach with coach them, but yeah, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how Ramirez gets on. Moving on, we had quite a heavy question from Sergio Guzman. He said, "I'd like to know if you think that the corruption scandals, uh, FIFA Gate, etc., have helped clean up the management of the sport, or if managers have only become more adept at carrying out." their graft in light of greater scrutiny what do you think the next big scandal will involve uh, well yeah i mean i think to be honest i don't think it's really um affected things too much to be honest um don't want to be too down on it but um yeah i, I mean this i think there's always going to be a certain level of corruption and scandal when it comes to south american football um i think it's probably lost a little bit of clout at FIFA, not necessarily because of uh, the scandal, but I think certainly Argentina having Julio Grondona there before gave them quite a lot of power within FIFA. And, and I feel like they've um, certainly lacked that a bit now. So, I mean, in terms of the next big scandal, uh, yeah, I'm probably, probably not the right, right person to ask. You need probably need Andrew Jennings or someone like that to, uh, to, to ask uh, that kind of question. But um, yeah, I, I don't think, um, there's, you know, we're seeing a, a shiny, um, clean slate for for South American football. Necessarily, it's uh, it's going to take a bit longer to sort of change some of those uh, practices. No, I was just going to say, in terms of the next scandal, I think you know, there's there's scandals kind of already happening on the, on the continent. Um, just if if you look around the continent yeah we've we've done a podcast on a couple of these things before but women's football for example in in south american football mm. that is just like one big scandal in itself which is just constantly ongoing when you think that progress has been made there will then be a huge setback to that progress now i think both brazil and colombia are hoping to be chosen as as the host of the 2023 World Cup. But, you know, neither of them particularly deserve it, I think it's fair to say, because, you know, they just haven't got their house in order. And and every time it looks like progress has been made, there's a, there's a huge setback. And, and certainly this coronavirus will, will only, you know, make things a lot worse on that score. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think... When you talk about women's football in Colombia, there's so much reason to be positive and none of that comes from the footballing authorities. Um, the, the league seems like something they do reluctantly. 
um, despite the fact they can fill stadiums. They're getting, you know, 20, 30,000 fans watching women's football when it's had minimal promotion. It's They've done everything. They've held games at midday on a Tuesday and they still get thousands of fans. So I'm, I'm so impressed by the way the Colombian people have embraced and, uh, you know, supported women's football and so frustrated by the way the authorities have done everything to hold that back and the treatment of players, players having to buy their own kits and horrible uh, accusations of, of managers behaving inappropriately at the very, very least um, is is incre- incredibly frustrating. And in terms of Colombia, all I will say is Colombia is selling more drugs than it's ever sold in its history. And there's very little rumblings and scandal in regards to where that money goes. Uh, because it's all going straight into businesses, legit businesses to be laundered. And um, all I will say is historically, Colombian football clubs have played a vital, important role in that. And um, I would suggest that perhaps that situation hasn't completely uh, disappeared. When you have a, uh, when you report 30,000 fans in a stadium and nobody's counting, then uh, it's very easy to perhaps over-report that number and uh, launder some money if uh, if you wanted to. So I don't know. I, I would suggest that in terms of Colombia, the authorities are are hugely problematic in many ways and um, often pander to the least ethical, perhaps, authorities in certain clubs in the league. And, uh, and yeah, there's always a question of, of where all this money is getting laundered. And uh, I would suggest that perhaps there are certain clubs that wouldn't be adverse uh, to that opportunity to make a bit of money. How's that for diplomatic? I didn't actually blame anyone. You can't, you can't, you can't sue me. <laughs> yeah, well avoided. Okay, and just to finish off, something a little bit lighter um, in, in tone certainly compared to that last question we just had and um <laughs> and that's which south american country's food would win the copper america and which dish would get the golden ball when this uh when this question came through it sparked quite the discussion in our whatsapp group i think i think we're agreed on who would probably be the winner i would certainly go for peru i don't know if you guys would agree. I think it would definitely be a finalist. You know, in terms of if we're comparing it, I think it's probably got the the most diverse and balanced squad. If we were comparing it to a football team, it's um, yeah, some some great great dishes there to, that make up a great uh, team. I mean, obviously, I'd always uh, favour Argentina, but that's that's personal bias, and and certainly, um, you know, for any vegetarians out there, they probably wouldn't go for. Um, go for Argentina. It's, it's kind of got the the big name star of the the asado options around well, he's it. He's the but, big beefy um, striker up top, isn't he? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, so I think um, I think that would go far. And um, you know, I think Venezuela a bit of a dark horse there as well with uh, the arepas and the quenos. Um, I think they could they could go far in a, a Copa America of food. Uh, yeah, I think. Look, I mean, Peru are coming into this as the classy. Everyone knows what they're about. Full of full of style and panache. You know, all the great seafood, ceviche, and all that kind of stuff. I get it. I get it. I'm not the man to ask, right? All I can say is I, I can put the case forward for Colombia because I know people will, will expect me to, but I am super fussy. I eat what I'm told by my girlfriend. She bullies me. Like, I, it's, it's, it's good for me. It's good for me. But I'm just saying, I'm not, I'm not, 
I'm not ideally placed. I mean, Colombia, it's comfort food, right? You have you have your bandeja paisa with your chicharron, your pork scratching, your meat, your rice, your frijoles. You're filling yourself up with carbs and protein, uh, and then you have Bogota up on the mountain with um with their soups with ajiaco. <clears throat> and uh, all that kind of stuff, sancocho, which is a big old stew full of anything you can find thrown in together. And then up on the Caribbean coast, you've got your, your fish and your ceviche and all that good stuff. So Colombia has a bit of a variety, but there's nothing there's nothing prestige, I would say, about Colombian food. It's hearty, it's filling, it's, you know, there's meaty, it's protein, it's, you know, all that, all that good stuff. So I think, I think, I think Colombia maybe is, is a solid mid table, um, but there's, there's nothing flashy. They might, they might surprise from an occasion. You can, you can get a real nice dish here and there. You're not going to be too disappointed. I'd say with Colombia consistency rather than anything. Um, but what about Chile, Adam? What, what, what's your, what's your best, best play? What are you putting forward? Um, I think it's difficult. Like, a lot of the, <laughs> a, a lot of the dishes, for me, taste quite similar. Um, so, for example, uh, pastel de papas, which is quite popular here, which is kind of similar to what a cottage pie would be, maybe in British cuisine. You know that, but then a lot of the the taste and the ingredients of that you would just get in an empanada which is obviously one of the king snacks in, in southern South America, at least. Um, I think they're quite popular there in Colombia, though, although they tend to be more fried than baked, no? Yeah, Simon yeah. Simon the empanadas. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's also sort of fast food. It's quite popular in Chile, a completo, which is a hot dog. So you've got like a, a frankfurter-type sausage in a bun, but then you've got loads of ingredients going on top of that. Um, avocado, tomato, mayonnaise is the most popular one, which is called uh, Italiano because of uh, those three colours make the Italian flag um, on top of it. Um, Cazuela, which is a type of soup, is, is very popular here in Chile as well. Um, it, that is something I've only really ever enjoyed when my mother-in-law has made it. So <laughs> I think point. you know that that is like something you've got to have when it's like classic home cooking. But you know, a lot of just my, in case she's listening, <laughs> um, a lot, a lot, a lot of my a lot of my time here in Chile is just basically spent either cooking myself asian food or or getting korean food from from a restaurant um but in terms of other south american food I, you know i absolutely adore peruvian food probably my three favorite dishes here in south america are all peruvian so you've got like a, a trident of uh, of uh, of attacking options there ceviche um, probably the playmaker, you could say. Simon's already mentioned it. So much panache and flair to it. Then you got a lomo sodado, um, which is like stir fried beef, and you can have sort of chips and rice with that. But the the meat is usually like really tender and juicy. Um, usually comes with with tomatoes um, as well, cooked with it. And then pr- possibly my favourite, which is ahi daigina, which is like a creamy chicken almost type curry like dish yeah but yeah there's a there's there's a lot to like in peruvian food uh ricotto rellena really spicy peppers stuffed with um 
and stuff with all sorts. So, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's a beautiful cuisine, one of the best in the world, in my opinion. And uh, and yeah, possibly if there was a World Cup of of cuisines, then Peru might be making it to to the last four. Even Tom, we have some great fruits as well, oh, great fruits and the empanada and the, and all that good stuff. But Tom. Brazil, we've been talking them up as the best footballing team in South America right now. What about on on the on the plate? How are they doing on the plate? Nah, they're they're very they're flattering to deceive. It's so a lot of fried stuff, very very stodgy. Um, yeah, I I mean, obviously a country as big as Brazil is obviously going to have some some good options, but yeah, I. When, every time I've been to Brazil, I've always been a bit let down by by the food. My to to go back to Adams. Uh, point about Chilean food uh, a, a lot of the time I, fe- I feel like they just put an egg on everything it was kind of like a normal dish and they'd just they'd just be a fried egg on top of it <laughs> yes that, that is also a thing yeah like I say like I once I once I drew sort of a family tree of of Chilean foods where you could see sort of all these dishes uh, which are called separate names but really sort of they all have like a very similar route to them. Um, yeah. And it does get a little bit dull after a while, in, in my opinion. Hopefully I don't offend too many of our Chilean listeners with that, especially coming from Britain. I'm well aware of our reputation <laughs> cuisine wise across the world. Um, but like I say, okay. I'm a massive fan of Asian food. So. In terms of, uh, I feel like I should rep, represent Argentina a bit more than just mentioning the, the obvious stake there. I mean, obviously, you've also got a nice glass of Malbec whipping the whipping the crosses into uh, to the Argentinian stake to, to finish it off. But there's also so, there's so much more to Argentinian food than than just the meat. Obviously, there's a huge Italian heritage. So you've got things like a Milanesa, which is like a breaded sort of chicken breast um uh, escalope kind of thing going on um you've got pizza pasta all that all that good stuff but then also you've got some really interesting dishes like umita which is kind of um a lot of sort of sweet almost uh, like a sweet yeah, corny that's popular in chili as well but then then that's not too far removed from pastel de choclo which is another very popular yeah. dish here in, <laughs> in chili that's so. true but and also you you can't forget the the dulce de leche from argentina that goes in pretty much every dessert and um in fact i was snacking on some nice alfajores that my girlfriend made um, earlier with, with the leche. Ah, okay that's interesting um and then obviously um you know the lomitos um from from cordoba chivitos from from uruguay great sort of sub sandwiches that are amazing and and you know wash it down with a with a big um two litre plastic bottle of uh, Fernet and Coke <laughs> to finish things off and have a wild night. Yeah, I think this was the final point I was going to add. Well, a couple of things on the Brazilian food, having done quite a few places in, in, in Brazil, the north, the, the, the middle and the south, I would say that Bahia um, was by far the best um, cuisine experience in Brazil very different from the rest of the country huge west african influences there on the food of course as well as the music and and, and other cultural parts of life very impressed with 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 most of the dishes i had there so yeah there's that point but yeah i think i think tom has and simon have both touched on some other things so although south america might not um, match some other countries in the world in terms of sort of world-class plates um, but the drink selection and the fruit selection is arguably better than than anywhere else so yeah 
um, Tom's mentioned Fernet, in, which is popular in Argentina. Then you've got Pisco, which is popular in Peru and Chile. In Colombia, what's the spirit-type drink in, in Colombia? Yeah, Aguadiente. Aguadiente, yeah. It's a bit yeah. like Sambuca without the, without the licorice aftertaste. So it's kind of it's that kind of uh, clear, goes straight down. I mean, you got to get used to it, but it goes down smooth when you're used to it. <laughs> You've got uh, cachaça, yeah, yeah, nice little caipirinha, yeah. Um, yeah, very nice, and uh, yeah. So you know, uh, a lot of quality um, spirits in my, in my opinion uh, across the continent, and as Simon said, fruits as well. Is anyone going to come out to bat for Bolivia and the uh, the guinea pigs? Oh uh, yeah, quite well, quite popular in Peru as well. The the guinea pig. I've never been a fan, but uh, <laughs> we'll leave it at that. Never been there. Yeah, and then and then if we if we move away, well, I haven't even mentioned red wine in Chile, which is arguably the best in the world. But if we even move away from alcoholic drinks, you know, you got mate, which is obviously popular in in Argentina, Uruguay, and Paraguay, especially, isn't it, Tom? You're a fan, I think. Yeah, I was uh, I was sipping on some yesterday. It's a very social drink. I think the the place that where I saw the the highest um, density of it was was Uruguay. They every person was you know walking around with a with a mate or driving a bus drinking a mate. Everyone had a a thermos uh, under under their arm. So uh, yeah, I'd say that Uruguay is probably the the biggest mate drinker. You obviously got Terere um in Paraguay as well, I think. Um but uh, yeah, it's uh, again like a lot of things um and some of the drinks, it's a bit of an acquired taste at first, but um once you get into it and and certainly the social aspect around of it um yeah, really, really, really enjoyable once you once you can get your your, your tongue in. <laughs> yeah, well, and also one other mention, something else which has popped into my head when I travelled around the world oh, just over a decade ago. Argentina was a penultimate country I visited, and I would say of all those countries I, I, I visited in the world, they had the best ice cream. Oh yeah. Some f- fantastic um, ice cream in in Argentina. Obviously, that uh, Italian influence, the gelato is coming across. Um, where whether you're just going to uh, a Grido or a Fredo or, or any of those sort of chain ones, they're they're un- the there's so many d- good flavors and and a, and I do say the leche ice cream. I think it's it's hard to beat that. I, th- I think that wraps us up for for this Q and A session. I think it's been a fun couple of hours talking all things football and a bit of food there at the end tom where can people find you so yeah you can find me on twitter at tom 89 um there should be some scouting spotlight pods coming out on the world football index uh, very soon hopefully we've uh, done a bit of a, re- a review with uh, with austin and then um we've done one on federico vinas and uh, also Nahuel Bustos. Um, so so they, they should be, they were really fun ones to record. So yeah, check them out and um, yeah, just follow me on Twitter. And Simon? Yeah, so on Twitter at Simon Edwards SAF. Uh, in terms of stuff that's happening, I mean, I would just say make sure you're subscribed to the World Football Index. Uh, there's some really great shows coming out. Obviously, we've been looking at some great stories from world football, Colombia 94, Algeria, uh, Ecuador, Paraguay. It's all great stuff. And I think we've got a good episode coming up uh, next week as well. So I would just say follow me on Twitter, obviously, Simon Edwards 
SAF on Twitter. And then make sure you're subscribed to World Football Index and uh, getting all this good stuff in your ear once a week. Yeah, and you can find me at Adam Bradson 84 Yeah, just to back up what Simon said there, definitely check out our latest series of podcasts that we've been putting out on the World Football Index. Many of them feature Tim Vickery as well, which is a bonus for many of our listeners, I'm sure. Well, it's just left for me to say a huge thanks to Simon and Tom for joining me to answer these fascinating questions that everybody sent in. Huge thanks to everybody who did send a question in and a huge thanks to everybody who listened to our answers. That's all from us this week. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.